Come gather, come gather, friends, close by the fire, and hear of a wondrous tale. Of goblins and elves and miscoated dells, and heroes who strive to prevail. They'd found them at last, those dastardly foes! Joe and Graham were now within reach! They'd be caught the next day, with goblins leading the way, and earn silver to split between each. You're listening to Aliads and the Aliad Squad by Leona Cara. Chapter 4 To See the Unseen. It's a miniature horse. What else could it be? I don't think so. That seems too simple. My mind is still on it giving you visions of a short woman named Winona. That seems like Harvey's style. No, he doesn't mess with hallucinations. He knows how to have fun without getting people into trouble. It's the right amount of complexity, though. I agree with Ali. Look at the label. It's got to be a small horse. Exactly, Trinia. Thank you. Look at the label. Minnie Winnie. Minnie? Small. Winnie? Horse. Do you think he creates a miniature horse, or it turns you into a miniature horse? Well, I don't know. I, I have no idea how this stuff works, but either way, Minnie Winnie, nothing else makes more sense. Well, we'll see, but I'm not going to be the one to try it. Can you imagine having hooves? Ugh, how weird. Trenia, Delarin, Russ, Pogren, and I all sat in a circle on the wooden floor of the largest room the Elk's Beard Inn had to offer poring over the pile of creations Delarin had received from Harvey the Hypothecary. We had debated the nature of several items thus far. A paper envelope filled with gravel labeled pebble weights, a glass vial with a rose-colored liquid labeled the rose nose, a pair of wire-framed glasses called expectacles, and an empty brown bottle simply labeled invisible. Currently in Dell's hands was a potion called the Mini Winnie, which, I mean, come on, how, how could that be anything but a tiny horse? We had not intended to stop at the Elk's Beard Inn, but after learning that our goblin assailants were somehow working for Joe and Graham, and after securing their agreement to lead us to Joe and Graham in exchange for their lives, we recognized that it would be foolish to confront the jolly robbers in our collective state of exhaustion. Battling the goblins had been extremely taxing. Physically, for Pogren and Trenia, who had led the charge with their swords and brawn. Mentally, for Russ, who had whipped up a flurry of wizardly wonders to keep us all safe. And emotionally, for me and Delarin. Delarin had been the one to tend to Harvey the Hypothecary, as Harvey watched his entire life's work go up in flames. And I, well, I was processing the fact that I had just killed someone. For the first time ever. There was blood on my hands, literally and figuratively. Pogren tried to cheer me up on the road by reminding me, Goblins aren't people, Allie. They're little more than monsters. It's not at all the same as killing a human or a dwarf. And even then, sometimes death is the right choice. I was sitting on the driver's perch on top of the carriage next to Trenia and the driver Mila, as Pogren rode along beside us on horseback. Trenia agreed with Pog and added, Wielding a blade means wielding an endless stream of choices. Well spoken, Trenia. I say you chose well. I know they were both trying to help me feel better, but I didn't really want to feel good about what I'd done. You said you lived on a farm, right? Yeah. Surely you must have butchered animals growing up. Not really. Our farm grew vegetables for the most part. Potatoes, cabbages, 
the occasional turnip. We kept a few animals for milk and eggs, but when they got old, we just called Mr. Gray, the town butcher. I mean, there was one time that a fox broke into our chicken coop, and my brother Jamie and I chased it away, but it had already bitten one of the hens. She was still alive, but she was in really bad shape, so... Well, I helped, but Jamie was the one holding the axe. I didn't say that I was the one holding the chicken, and that I felt so disgusted by the way it writhed in my hands after Jamie swung the axe, I didn't eat chicken for a whole year. Pogren continued. Death isn't pleasant, Allie, but it's necessary. Whether it's the animals you eat, or the man who tries to kill you, nothing lives without death. Our nine goblin prisoners led us north, which led us to Erston, which led us to the Elk's Beard Inn, which offered us warm supper and soft beds. Pogren negotiated with the inn's horsemaster to allow us to tie up our prisoners in the barn. Of course, when I say Pogren negotiated, I mean he pulled out his heavy purse and persuaded the horsemaster to sell us some extra rope and look the other way. Tired as we were, we agreed to strategize a bit before turning in, hence the pile of curiosities in the middle of the floor. Based on my previous encounters with Joe and Graham, we needed to be sharp, we needed to be clear about who was doing what, and we needed to be aware of every tool at our disposal. Delarin put aside the bottle of Mini Winnie and picked up a small packet of candies. Flight birds. Any guesses? They make you fly, obviously. Dibs! We don't know that they do that, Allie. Dibs! They could turn you into a bat. Flight and bite? Still, Dibs. I grabbed the packet from Delarin's hand. I'd always wanted to fly. Even if it was a hairy old bat, I was in. Thank you for the warning, lads, but I'll take my chances. Suit yourself. I've got to say, none of this looks especially helpful. Expectacles? Pebble weights? I think we'd be best to stick to what we know and not take any chances tomorrow. Agreed. Swords? Trenia looked at Pogren. Spells? She looked at Russ. And, well, she looked at me and Delarin, as did Russ and Pog. There was an awkward moment, as the three of them considered how Del and I fit in. Hey, we've got plenty of strengths. I'm the only one who's ever faced Joe and Graham. Grandbauer is my goat, and I think I've proved myself today. My stomach clenched as I thought of the goblin I'd killed lying face down in the gorse. And there's no way Delarin's not coming, right? Trinia stared at Delarin's thin, lanky limbs, which spasmed ever so slightly as he shifted on the floor. We don't know what the terrain will be like. We have no idea what awaits. It could be sensible for you to wait in the carriage with Melka, Delarin. I know my limits, Trinia eyes blind. And they are greater than you might think. That's damn right, Del. Did you pack your sword? I did. Good. Del's always been better with a sword than Russ. It's true. And I've never climbed a peak that Delarin didn't climb too. Then it's settled. We all follow the goblins and rescue Grandbauer together. Let's keep the real prize in sight. Fanny and Tom first. D- darn it. That's always going to confuse me. Joe and Graham first, then Grandbauer. Well, if that's how it happens, then sure, yeah. Ali? What? Of course I want to capture Joe and Graham. But ultimately, Grandbauer comes first. For you. For us. I'm the one that invited you. To capture Joe and Graham. And get Grandbauer. Hopefully, yes. No, no, no. Not hopefully. Definitely. We'll definitely try. No, no trying. We are getting him back. That is the whole reason we brought you. For your crazy magic stuff. So I'm only here for my magic? Well, apparently you're only here for Joe and Graham. I'm not about to risk my life for a silly- Don't say it. What, a silly goat? 
A silly what? I rose to my feet in a challenge to Russ. Delarin rose too, and waved his hands as if batting at smoke. Okay, it looks like we're all a little bit tired. Why don't we get some rest and finish up in the morning? Pog, Russ, and Trenia grumbled their assent and stood up. Delarin gathered up our goods from the hypothecary and stuffed them into his pockets. As I turned to walk out the door, I turned back to Russ. Granbauer isn't just a silly goat. He is everything good in this world. Russ waved a weary hand. Sure. Good night. No, not good night. Trenia pulled on my arm from the doorway. No, no, I, I need him to understand. I have not traveled 200 miles to not find Granbauer. Yes, he's a goat. But I love him, okay? You love your brothers, don't you? Wouldn't you walk hundreds of miles to save them? A pet goat is not the same thing as a brother. I thought of my own brother, Jamie, of his taunts and jeers, of how lonely I'd felt growing up in Fribbleshire, especially after our father died, of how I came to be known as a weirdo and a freak, of how I came to be known as Allie Odds. I stared at Russ and said, You're right. A goat is not the same as a brother. Sometimes it's more. Trenia and I removed to our quarters and began our nightly ritual of applying salve and balm to our respective wounds. The burns on my arm were looking much better, but it was still rather sore at the break. Miraculously, I hadn't bumped it at all in my tumble down the hill after I... Well, after I killed the goblin. That could have set me back weeks, or even rebroken the bones. Yep, I was the lucky one in that encounter, in every way. The arrow wound on Trenia's shoulder had scarred over nicely, but her exertions against the goblins had agitated her healing tissues, and her entire shoulder felt raw and hot. Her jaws clenched from the ache, and no matter how we shifted her, we just couldn't find her a comfortable position on the bed. Ah, I knew she'd overdo it. If only there was a creek or a lake nearby, where we could submerge her in cool water for a while. Surely that would help the pain. An idea came to me then. I whispered to Trenia, I'll be back in a minute, and then I snuck out of the room and into the hall. I tiptoed back to Russ's room and quietly knocked on the door. A strip of light shone out from the bottom of the door, which hopefully meant he was awake. And hopefully he wasn't still in a huff from our conversation about Granbauer earlier, even though I still was. Just a little bit. I heard footsteps from within, and then the door cracked open and flooded my face with candlelight. Allie? What is it? It's Trenia. She's in a lot of pain from today's battle. Her shoulder- Hey, what are those? I saw several large tomes on the desk behind Russ, several of which were open to intricate drawings of runes and strange glowing symbols. Russ looked back in his room. Oh, uh, spell books. Just doing a bit of research. Spell books? My outburst startled Russ. Sorry. <laughs> uh, spell books. Ooh, cool. Um, can I see them? Russ stood in the doorway for a moment, debating, then opened the door all the way and waved me in. Sure, but just for a minute. I walked over to his desk and studied the open books. One book had a page with a circular drawing on it that looked an awful lot like the fiery marks I'd seen on the wall inside Joe and Graham's lair near Harrowdelf. Beside the drawing were words written in the common tongue, which I was able to read. Chapter 9. Novice Incantations for Triggerglyphs. Section 1. Spoken Triggers By far, a novice's easiest means of releasing spells bound within glyphs is through speech, as speech is the primary method of stable spellcasting learned by the aspiring mage. 
The true complexity of releasing a spoken glyph, therefore, is related to the complexity of creating one, as both aspects require mastery of transcranation, the manipulation of magical substances between predetermined pockets of time. Reference Chapter 6, Section 3, Transcranation. I looked up at Russ. This is what you read before bed? Russ scratched his head sheepishly. Not always. Just wanted to brush up on a few things for tomorrow. I scanned the other open books on Russ's desk. They all had a strange scrawling script that I couldn't read. And pictures of circles within circles within squares within circles that I couldn't even begin to comprehend. Some books had pages with glowing ink, as if spells were about to pop right off of the page. And others had writing that moved on the paper, like gears on a mill. I was utterly enchanted. So, what did you need? Hmm? Oh, right. Um, I tore my attention away from Russ's magical books. Trenia's shoulder is really hurting. I was wondering if maybe you could make her some ice. Ice? Sure. How much? I shaped my fingers into a circle about three inches wide. Maybe this much? Okay, I can do that. Russ sat down on the edge of his bed and closed his eyes. Oh, wait! Maybe a big flat piece? So she can lie down on top of it. Sure. Russ closed his eyes again and took a deep breath. Sorry, but maybe maybe two? Is that too much? No, I can do that. I sat in the chair by Russ's desk and watched on in wonder as a thick block of ice blossomed in his cupped hands. How did he do this stuff? Would one of those books on his desk teach me how? Oh my gosh! So cool! Russ opened his eyes and handed me a beautiful, freezing, perfect slab of ice. There's one... He closed his eyes and repeated the feat. Amazing! And there's two. Anything else? No, that's perfect. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Russ rose from the bed and returned to the desk as I headed for the door. I opened it, but stopped in the doorway. Russ was already bent over a book with a hand beneath his chin. You'll get some sleep, right? I will. Promise? Promise. Okay. I made to leave, but turned back again. I'm I'm sorry about earlier. I really do appreciate all that you're doing to help. Thanks. I'm sorry, too. Father always says I can be a bit obtuse. You're not obtuse. You're just... You. Good night, Russ. Good night. I closed the door and returned to Trenia. I wrapped the ice blocks in the corners of our bedsheet and slid one beneath her shoulder and rested the other on top, just above the glowing marks of the Ozpalan. The ice soothed her immediately, and within minutes, she'd fallen asleep. Man, I had to learn myself some magic. I removed the ice and put it in the chamber pot to melt, then fell asleep beside Trenia, visions of the glowing words of Russ's spellbooks drifting in and out between glimpses of the goblin and the gorse. We woke at dawn. The innkeeper provided us with sizzling rashers of bacon, eggs on toast, and steaming cups of nettle tea, which we gobbled down with little chatter. It seemed that no one in our party was much of a morning person besides me, and I wasn't exactly my usual exuberant self. Melka sat next to me, sipping their tea and reviewing the previous day's notes. They wound the scroll forward on their writing box and scanned their scribble scrawl. After a moment, they peered up at me with narrowed eyes. Allie! You didn't tell me where you went once you left the carriage. Oh, um, I, I don't really want to talk about it. Melka shot an interrogative glance at Trenia, who busied herself with her bacon and said nothing.
you're gonna help me out here? I've got a big blank hole on my parchment. That's not gonna work. It's not my story to tell. Belka returned their attention to me and sniffed the air. Mmm. <laughs> I'm picking up notes of inner anguish, self-doubt. Ooh, is that a hint of existential crisis? Melka, leave her be. All right, all right. Kids are so sensitive these days. But you promise to tell me when you're ready? Yes, fine. I said anything to get them to stop. Wonderful. Ah, gosh, I'm so excited. You'll put on quite a show yesterday. If all goes well, this story's got bestseller written all over it. Father would love that. Russ poked at his uneaten eggs with the crust of his toast. It would certainly help us on our mission to claim the high seats of Turgallon. Pogren wiped his mouth on a napkin and rose from his seat. Then let's get to it. With our coach bumping along behind them, our nine goblin prisoners led us north on the road towards Allsforth. It was a warm, muggy morning. The sun painted the hills a beaming green, and the blue sky promised a fair, hot day. The wind winded as ever, but it lacked its frigid bite. The nine goblin prisoners shuffled steadily along beneath Pogren's watchful eye, their necks bound with rope, lest they abandon their promise to guide us to Joan Graham. The goblins seemed to struggle in the sunlight. They walked with their heads down, and those that had lost their strange slitted goggles held their hands over their huge yellow eyes to shield them from the bright rays of spring. Uncomfortable as they were, the goblins proved faithful. After two miles or so, their spokesperson stopped and pointed a pale green finger towards the western hills. Bar! Home, but so. Trenia, Russ, Dellerin, and I stepped out of the carriage and slipped on our packs. The rest of our journey would be on foot. Pogren dismounted his horse and gave its lead to Mila, who had guided and the coach onto the town of Dill. Thank you, Mila. We'll see you tonight. Aye, Master Pogren. Are you sure you don't want me to? All is in hand, Mila. We'll be raising a pint at Vian's by sundown, I promise. And Melka? Yeah? Make sure Vian gives you the nice room with a view of the lake. Tell him I sent you. And keep that quill sharp. I got you. Pogren, Russ, Dell, and Trinio all took a minute to double-check their gear. I, for one, had already triple-checked my gear. A bit of a nervous tendency I developed after my run-in with Joe and Graham. So, as Russ tightened his straps and as Dellerin tucked a few extra bundles of food in his satchel, I sifted through my backpack for a fourth time to run a hand over all my belongings. Waterskin? Check. Galena the Great? Check. Hatha's map? Check. Bedroll. Check. Money. Check. Extra clothes. Check. Food. Check. The pretty blue rock that I still couldn't part with, no matter how many times Trenia reminded me it was dead weight. Check. Check. Checkity check. Lastly, I touched the handle of Bertram's dagger, where it was fastened to my belt. <sighs> check. We waved goodbye to Milka. Have fun storming the lair! And headed on our way. The goblins led us west along a deer trail that wound through a craggy glen. Soon, the trail began to ascend, so that we walked above the craggy rocks of the valley floor and onto the northern slope of a wide mountain. Our walk grew tiresome as we climbed higher and higher, zigging and zagging around boulders and rills. It was tiring work, and I must say, Dellerin kept a brutal pace. He was at the head of our party, and he seemed as happy as a puppy to be walking across the hills of Kel. Pogren followed close behind him, offering a hand where the path was especially bumpy, and holding the end of the rope that bound the goblins. Dell reached for Pogren's hand more than once. 
He walked almost on his tippy toes, and his gait leaned distinctly towards his right side. At one point, his knee locked, and he stumbled to the ground. But he stood up, brushed off the dirt, and carried on, unfazed and undaunted. Clearly, Trinia had underestimated him. And, I admit, so had I. Back home in Fribbleshire, Martin Gray, the butcher's boy, had legs that turned inward and caused him to walk in a unique, weaving, wandering sort of way. No one invited him to help with jobs around town, like fixing the roof or plowing a field, because I guess no one thought he could do it. Gimpy Gray, we called him. Gimpy Gray the butcher's boy. I had called him that myself. I felt ashamed to walk in Delarin's footsteps. Not because of what he was capable of, but because of the mirror he held up to how I had related to capability altogether. How many people had I written off, whose bodies moved and looked different than mine? How many people had I judged and dismissed that I could have known and loved? Delarin's ability to climb these hills was only impressive when I took into account that I didn't believe he could do it. Without my preconceptions, Delarin just got to be Delarin, doing what Delarin wanted to do. Who on earth was I to judge that? After a few hours of hiking, we stopped for a break on the lee side of a scree-covered saddle between two wind-beaten peaks. Tirmel and Tirfala, as Delarin pointed out. Delarin pulled out snacks from his satchel, and we sat down and passed them around, all except Russ, who withdrew his spellbook and sat apart from the group reading. I could tell it was one of the books with glowing ink, since the tinge of his face changed colors every time he flipped a page. Oh, I wanted to know what was in there! Did it tell you how to shoot fire from your fingertips? Or lift chunks of rock from the earth? Could it teach me how to make ice? Or, or potions like Harvey the Hypothecary? When we resumed walking, I sidled up beside Russ. Hey, Russ. Yes? I have a question. Um, how does magic work? Russ startled me with a laugh. <laughs> how does magic work? Yeah. That's like asking why the stars shine or how the ocean came to be. It's an impossible question. But you're a wizard. You use magic. Well, yes, I use it. But the first lesson all wizards learn is that magic is inherently unknowable. It is the unknown. It's the intangible, invisible whatness of the world. Anyone who claims to know exactly how it works is a fool and a liar. Okay. But then how can you use something if you don't even know what it is? Do you have thoughts? Uh, yes. Do you know what they are? What do you mean? They're my thoughts. Yes, but what are they? Well, they uh, I don't know. But you do have thoughts. Yes, I have thoughts. And some good ones, too, I might add. Of course. Do you use your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I plan things. I prepare for things. I remember things. That's kind of a thought, right? Just a past thought. I use thoughts to make decisions, and when I'm talking to people, I mean, I guess I'm always thinking, even though I'm not always aware of it. Do you ever have, like, an inner monologue that's always just kind of running in your head, like you're talking to a bunch of people about your life all the time, like, just telling a story constantly? Well, I do. Thank goodness no one has to hear that. Right. Well, magic is similar. It's always right there, always at hand, but it passes by if you're not aware of it. But where is it? Is it in our heads? Yes and no. One of my professors at the college said that everything in the world is magic, especially the parts we can't see. I looked around at our surroundings. We were descending the south side of Tirfala, and were headed towards a long, narrow lake. 
The first trees I'd seen in days stood tall against its banks, and there was a wee little isle in the middle that looked like a fuzzy head poking out of the water. The sun was high in the sky, and its heat beat down on the tall green hills, whose grass spiraled and swirled in the raging wind. The soil was spongy and soft beneath our feet, and wildflowers flushed the valley with swatches of pink, purple, and gold. It all did seem very magical. I bent down and plucked a yellow buttercup from the ground. So, you're saying everything I need to cast a spell is in this flower? I'm sure my professor would say yes. The first step to using magic is simply seeing it. I stared at the little buttercup in my hand. Its five yellow petals were barely the size of my thumb, and yet it suddenly seemed so powerful. But, of course, it's more complex than that. Russ and I talked for the remainder of our walk. He told me all about his time at the Arcanium College, about the five main branches of magic, and how you don't even learn how to cast spells for the first two years of school. Apparently, it's all just theory. Ugh, boring. He said that anyone who really wants to wield magic must first wield their mind. The first two years of school are to weed out the people who won't take that seriously. If you survive that, then you can pick what branch of magic you want to study. The options were artificing, which sounded the most mathy of the bunch and involved designing magical structures and tools. Alchemy, which aside from the basic magical chemistry and potion making implied in the name, involved the most direct manipulation of matter. Metamancy, the healing branch and the only one that used magic to directly interact with living beings. Lore, the branch Melka had chosen, and which apparently involved the least amount of hands-on magic, but some of the niftiest. And lastly, Elementalism, which I'd had the pleasure of witnessing firsthand. Apparently, Russ had wanted to become an alchemist, like Harvey the Hypothecary, but his dad made him change to Elementalism because it was more practical. There was also a sixth field of study at the Arcanium College, called Magical Relations, but that one didn't teach actual magic, so I didn't care. I wanted to hear about the good stuff. I tell you, I could have listened to Russ talk about magic all day and all night. I had always been pretty curious, but this whole magic business ensnared me in a whole new way. Russ seemed equally enthused. Talking about his time at the Arcanium College brought out the same joy I had seen on his face when he was juggling stones in Cawthrum's town square. It was a pure and honest joy. It was good to see him smile. We were so wrapped up in our conversation that we didn't notice when the rest of our party stopped. I ran face first into Trenia's back and bumped my nose against her shoulder blade. Ow! Why did she have to be so well muscled? The goblins had brought us to a cliff along the shores of that long, narrow lake we'd seen from above, and they were pointing to where a trickle of water fell down the cliff into a shallow pool. The spokes goblin told Pogrin, Hum, there, big inside. Pogrin looked at the cliff and furrowed his brow. That is a wall of stone. How can the big she be inside a wall of stone? It was rather puzzling. The cliff appeared to be a solid wall of chunky gray slate, speckled with moss and worn by the constant trickle of water. In wetter times, perhaps the trickle flooded into a wide cascading fall that could hide a cave or a secret entrance behind it. But as we could clearly see behind the drips, there was no cave, nor secret entrance. Only a crag of impenetrable stone. Is it a dead end, Park? Or worse, is it a trap? That would be just like Joe and Graham. A trap? Oh no. 
Pogren seemed to be having the same thoughts. His right hand rested on the grip of his sword, and when the spokes goblin crouched down to pick up a sizable rock from the ground, Pogren drew his sword. Put it down. No, Yurka, see? I said put it down. No, no, see? The goblin lifted the rock above its head as if to throw it, and Pogren raised his sword to strike. Petrenia caught Pogren's arm before the blow fell. Stop! Pogren and the spokesgoblin froze. Trenia gestured to the cliff, where the trickle of water splashed into the shallow pool. Listen. We all fell silent and bent our attention to the burbling splunk of water pouring into water. There's an echo. Indeed. There was a faint reverberation to the sound, as if there was a chamber or tunnel behind it. The spokesgoblin once again raised their rock to throw it. See? See? The goblin tossed the rock at the cliff, and to the shock and amazement of us all, the rock passed soundlessly through the cliff and landed with an echoing clatter somewhere out of sight. Huh? Russ leapt forward. It's an illusion! Oh my gosh, this is incredible! An illusion of this size with moving parts fixed in place? Wow, this is really advanced magic! Suddenly, Russ's expression changed from delighted admiration to grave consternation. This is really advanced magic. He stepped back from the wall and walked down to the shore of the lake, where he paced back and forth, rubbing his chin deep in thought. Trenia and I approached the wall that was apparently not a wall, and reached out curious hands to touch what wasn't there. Our fingers inched towards the slick gray stone, and just at the point when we should have felt the damp, slippery slate on our fingertips, they dissolved. I withdrew my hand, which was perfectly intact, and shrieked with delight. Even Trenia let out a giggle. Next, I stuck my whole hand inside and waved it around. All I felt was air. So I ventured up to my elbow, then to my shoulder, and then I took a deep breath in and plunged my head through the wall. All I saw was darkness, utter darkness, as if the illusory cliff was a solid curtain blocking out all light from the outside world. Oddly enough, I could still hear everything behind me. I could hear the crunch of stones sliding under Russ's feet as he paced down by the lake. I could hear Pogren slide his sword back into its sheath. I could hear the gentle sploosh of water dripping into the pool by my feet. And all these sounds I heard echoing down the dark tunnel before me. What do you see? I pulled my head out of the wall and back to the outside world, which now seemed blindingly bright. Nothing, I said. It's pitch black in there but it certainly sounds like a tunnel. I think the goblins were telling the truth. Pog and Dellerin had come to stand at the edge of the pool by the cliff and heard everything I said. Well, let's have some lunch before we go in. I'll tie the prisoners to that tree over there, and Russ, Russ can make some lights. Once we're ready and rested, we'll head in. Sounds like a plan. Trenia rose to her feet and stared at the wall that was not a wall. She took a deep breath and shook her head. I must say, Joe and Graham certainly are full of surprises. That they are. She put a hand on my shoulder, then turned to join the rest of the group for lunch. I stayed by the cliff for a minute longer, thrusting my hand in and out of the illusion, delighting at the sight of it disappearing and reappearing again. In and out, in and out. Oh, I couldn't believe that in a few short months, I had gone from being a simple farm girl to a person surrounded by goblins and spirits. Bells and wizards? In and out and in and out. I mean, I just did, what was next? Ogres? Dragons? The world was amazing. Life was incredible. 
in and out, in and out. Oh, gosh. I took a deep breath and rose to my feet. I stuck my arm into the wall one last time, back in, <laughs> and back out. But something grabbed it from inside the tunnel. <gasps> a vice-like grip pulled me forward. I was stumbling. I was falling. I was being dragged away. All I could hear were the screams of my friends echoing through the darkness. Allie! Allie! Allie. Allie.